Well, it is, uh, man, what a pleasure it is to be here with you this morning. As has been said a couple times, my name is Tim Brown, uh, and it's fair to say that the teaching and the people in this church here at Arendelle uh, have shaped, shaped the trajectory of my life. I grew up here, as has been said. Um, my family joined the church when I was eight years old. And uh, if you can believe that, that was, that was 31 years ago. I'm now at that kind of in-between age where, you know, I wake up and I've got starting to get stiffer joints in the morning. Um, you, I still feel like I'm in my mid-20s, but I'm, I'm not, you know, my, my hair's almost gone. Uh, you're not, you're not, you're no longer, it's, it's just like that worst age where you're no longer young enough for people to still be like proud of you. It's like, no, just go out and do your job. But uh, <laughs> no, nobody's impressed anymore. But anyway, except for my mom who is here, so she can, she can be impressed. Um, I'm married to my wife, Becky, who also attended Arendelle in our, in our younger years. And we were actually married right here. And uh, together we have three kids, Elijah, Jacob, and Eileen, 11, 9, and 7. Uh, for the past eight years, I've led a mission called Hope Story. We work in uh, seven countries around the world, um, so providing vulnerable children with learning, health, and Christian community. And we do that by partnering with local churches in the field. Lots of charities serve children and youth. What makes Hope Story unique is that we do it through the local church. By that, I mean churches on the ground who are invested in their community, just as, you know, Arendelle, Arendelle is here in central Mississauga. They, the local leaders know the kids and the families who most need help, and they exist. I mean, the churches there exist to disciple these young people in their, you know, in their community. We believe it's not just what you do, you know, the particular ministries that you're involved in, but it's how you do it. And so we've adopted a model of partnership, partnering with these churches to expand what it is that they're, they're doing. One thing that we as Hope Story love to do is to connect churches here in Canada with our partner churches, mostly around the world. Arendale recently had... Uh, had, had the experience of, of partnering with our, uh, our church partner in Thunder Bay, Ontario. It's our only partnership here in Canada to serve at a drop-in center that is led by a First Nations church. I spoke with the director earlier this week, a guy by the name of Andrew Lang, and he said, I knew, I knew we had the right group out when one of the women, you can guess who, who came to serve was wearing a skate or die shirt on her first day of, uh, of, of volunteering. But it's, it's a particular privilege of mine to be here to, to share the word with you this morning. And uh, I'll just start by asking a question. Where is your hope? Now, all of us know the Sunday school answer to that question, but really what, you know, deep down in your soul, in your gut, what is it that you're holding on to this morning? What is it that you, you bank on uh, when, when life gets really difficult? It's, it's a life or death question. In my personal devotions, I've been wading through some, some really hard passages in the Old Testament 
And this morning, uh, the text that we're going to be looking at is Joshua, or Joshua chapter 7. You'll probably vaguely somewhere, some of you in the back of your recesses, remember the story of Achan. So we're going to be looking at Achan's story this morning. Before we do that, I'll just, uh, I'll just say a brief word of prayer and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, thank you uh, personally for the privilege of being here back, back at Arendale Church. It still feels, feels like home. Um, I thank you for how you have blessed many over the years, me among them, um, through the teaching and the examples of, of just faithful living um, that you have given me and many others. And I pray that you would continue it, Lord. This morning, as we, as we spend time in your word, I just pray that you would speak to each one of us um, and use these words. Uh, may they not be, be mine, Lord, but, but yours, uh, convicting each of us of, of where you want us to go and what you want us to do. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So this is, this is quite a passage. We're going to read the whole chapter. Starting again at verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all of the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army. For only a few people live there. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people, tell them. Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. Whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. 
early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward and the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, the tri- of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, It's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Acre. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Acre, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Acre ever since. <laughs> that's, a, that's a heavy, heavy chapter. And, you know, I don't think any of us can read that and it not really, really disturb us. And it's not, it's not particularly, on its surface anyway, it's not a, not a particularly hopeful passage, especially in how it ends. The man, you know, uh, the man Aiken steals some gold and clothing and gets a brutal death penalty. Not only him, but his entire family. It really doesn't jive with our modern Western sensibilities it also just doesn't jive with our sense of who God is and how he works in the world. You know, there's, there's part of us, part of me anyway, reading that, that, that feels offended. Where's the love? Where's the grace? To a certain extent this morning, I don't, (laughs) I don't have answers on that. I'm not myself. I'm not a theologian, just a, just a guy like you who reads the Bible through a modern Canadian lens. So today we're not going to dive in especially as to why God allowed something like this suffering to, to happen, ordered the deaths of, of innocent, an innocent, you know, in some cases, family and animals. Um, what I'm here to focus on is what we can learn from Israel's mistake. And I see here a number of reminders to the nation of Israel and to us, Church of Christ by extension, that where we hope we place our hope is a matter of life and death. So let's get back into the story. So in the previous book, you know, you turn back a few pages, you get to the book of Deuteronomy. We learn that Joshua was God's man filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid hands on him. 
Joshua and his army had just defeated Jericho with a marching band. Now faced with the conquest of Ai, and now now they're facing the conquest of Ai, the Canaanite city. A man named Achan steals some objects that we learn were devoted, to be devoted to God. You can read about that in the previous chapter. These, These items were reserved for God's treasury. In war, you know, when the Israelites would go to war, sometimes they were told, uh, you know, vanquish the people, take whatever you you want for yourself. You know, it's the spoil of war. This was not one of those circumstances. As a result of one man's greed, Israel is humiliated, defeated by what appears, at least at first, to be a small, unimpressive city. Utterly devastated, Joshua tears his cloak and wallows in the dust before God. And usually, you know, that's an appropriate response. That's what God expects of us, right? But here in this passage, uh, it doesn't really seem to be the tone that God, uh, you know, God takes on. He's, he's almost seems annoyed. You know, he tells Joshua, get off the ground. Don't feel sorry for yourself. I told you what would happen if Israel stole from me. So Achan then is identified and, well, you know, owns up to his sin. And that's, I find that to be a curious detail that's included in this passage, right? One thing I love about the Bible is its inclusion of these confounding details that actually, you know, make, make me believe the story more. Well, if, if Achan is the villain of this story, why are we told that he owns up to his sin? The author has me sympathizing for this this poor guy. Then the other shoe drops. Achan, his family, all of his possessions, stoned. What are we to make of this? Again, this morning, I'm not going to be focused on why exactly God annihilated Achan and his family. I believe that Pastor Dave's focusing on that next week. (laughs) Kidding. (laughs) Um, Suffice it to say that... uh, God is sovereign, and he takes sin a lot more seriously than we do. But I think there's more here that we can take and apply to our lives even this week. First thing that we can note is this disaster started with a very common, a very easy mistake. There's no indication that Joshua, God's chosen warrior, in facing the city of Ai, even thought to seek God's will when he sent his soldiers to the attack. And really, can you blame him? The the campaign seemed on its surface like a no-brainer. He knew, Joshua knew God was with him and that God's intent was to raise his profile to be at the same level of Moses. He knew for certain that this land was was supposed to be handed over. Fundamentally, he believed in himself. If you Google believe in yourself, you can probably imagine what the first 10 pages of entries say, and a lot more than that. I only had patience to go through the first 10 pages of entries. They're all in complete agreement that we need to believe in ourselves to be successful in life. 
Believing in ourselves, says an entry in psychology today, is kind of like the key that turns the ignition and starts the car. We can't really go anywhere without it. At the end of chapter 6, in the wake of Jericho's conquest, we learn that the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. I don't know about you, but I really, really believe in the idea that fame and power can be toxic, that even success can be toxic. The Bible itself is replete with examples. I'm sure a few come to mind. So is life. Men and women of God are not immune. In fact, I think they are particularly susceptible um, to, to in the area of like spiritual success. Joshua strategized, sent spies, and these guys saw just a few unimpressive people. They saw a vulnerable city. So Joshua took this intel, strategized as best he could, you know, sent a few thousand soldiers, not the whole army, um, and prepared for battle. He assumed God's blessing and he, he took his own counsel. Now, is there anything wrong with that? Remember, Joshua was one of the 12 spies who, you know, a generation earlier, went to spy on Canaan. Ten of the spies were overwhelmed by the might and the power of the Canaanites. They saw giants. Only Joshua and Caleb could see past the obstacles to the goodness of the land and trusted in God's power. And I think there's the rub. When Joshua spied out Canaan, he looked at that powerful nation and he believed in in God. He believed in God's promises. Here in chapter 7, he looked at the people of Ai and he believed in himself. A devastating defeat followed. God was with Joshua, no doubt, before, you know, and after this, this humiliation. But it was in the wake of his greatest triumph that he suffered his most humiliating defeat. Friends, we are, we are similarly vulnerable. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, When I am weak, then I am strong. The reverse, I think, is also true. When I am strong, I am weak. Have you seen that to be true in your own life? The Bible doesn't teach us to believe in ourselves fundamentally. The Bible doesn't teach us to follow our hearts. Jeremiah writes that the heart is deceitful above all things. Some of you have heard the name G.K. Chesterton, a famous 20th century British author and journalist. Uh, And he shares a conversation between himself and his publisher that that I just find very revealing. The publisher, so this is quote, this is a quote from one of his books. The publisher said of somebody, that man will get on, he believes in himself. I said to him, shall I tell you where the men are who believe most in themselves? For I can tell you, I know of men who believe in themselves more colossally than Napoleon or Caesar. I know where flames the fixed star of certainty and success. I can guide you to the thrones of supermen. The men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. Now, the publisher said mildly that there are good many men, after all, who believed in themselves and who were not in lunatic asylums. Yes, there are, I retorted. And you of all men should know them. 
the drunken poet from whom you would not take the dreary tragedy. He believed in himself. The elderly minister with an epic from whom you were hiding in a back room. He believed in himself. If you consulted your business experience instead of your ugly individualistic philosophy, you would know that believing in himself is one of the commonest signs of a rotter. Actors who can't believe, act, can't act believe in themselves and debtors who won't pay. It would be much truer to say that a man will certainly fail because he believes in himself. Joshua went into battle believing in himself rather than God, I think. Self-confident and with good intentions, he proceeded into an unnecessary debacle. The lesson here, seek God's face, even in the little things. Place your confidence in him, not in your own intelligence or past success. We'll, we'll give Joshua a break here. His oversight strikes a little bit too cl close to comfort for me. Let's get back to Achan. What led to Achan's downfall, to his theft? Well, whether it's, it's money or sex or any of the things that we are tempted by, lust usually begins in the mind. For Achan, he somehow came into contact with this loot. It began with a prolonged look. You know the one. James chapter 1 says that each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. All of us are tempted. We're tempted by status, tempted by wealth, tempted by security. And these are not, these are not bad things as far as they go. And we can certainly use each of those things to glorify God. But they're as dangerous as fire. In our minds, in our hearts, these things can replace God very easily. And it's an issue that we see again and again cropping up in Israel's history. I think it's one that we can all relate to on a personal level. We put our trust in God, in things. Sorry, we put our trust in things, in idols instead of God. So that's, uh, that's lesson number two here. Hope in God, not in things. Achan put his trust in things. Pastor Keller, Tim Keller, who some of you will, will know, passed away just in the last week. Um, he had this to say. First, I'm talking about Aiken. First, he gazed at the objects and assessed their value. Then he found himself desiring them. Finally, he stole them. In other words, before he divulged, indulged in the kind of intense, passionate lusting we might all recognize as temptation, he first gave himself the freedom to gaze and admire and ponder and imagine. Now that's just like one particular scenario. But we are all tempted daily to put our, to put our trust in things and circumstances rather than God. We all have blind spots, areas of sin that only the Holy Spirit can reveal. After all, even our own hearts deceive us. If, if you don't believe that, talk to your spouse, talk to a parent, talk to a friend, or perhaps an enemy. We deceive ourselves. So here's an exercise. When you get nervous about the future, what is it that you spend your time dwelling on. That might be your treasure. Or if someone wrongs you in a certain way, what is it fundamentally on a deeper level that they're tampering with? 
That might be where your treasure is. Money, your investments, the value of your house. I remember hearing about a dentist, a church-going man, who was kept, who was kept up at night. You know, he was a wealthy man, but kept up at night worrying that the money he had invested was not going to be enough to maintain his high standard of living. Maybe you worry about your family, your kids' future, education. Maybe it's your health. Jesus writes in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We also know that Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. How do we in the day-to-day place our hope in God rather than in some of the good things that he provides us with? A lot of answers to that question. I just would like to focus on one of them. And I think it's probably the primary one is that we just need to fix our eyes on him. We need to know that he is in himself the most valuable thing. It's only by falling in love with our creator anew every day that we can put everything else in the right perspective. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. A couple weeks ago, I was in the city of Medellin, Colombia, home of the infamous drug lord Pablo Escobar, and once ranked as the most dangerous city on earth. Here, Hope Story partners with a local church called Tiempo de Paz that... uh, that cares for us at-risk children in some of the toughest corners of this city. I met children there who had faced incredible trauma. One boy, we'll call him Alejandro, had been routinely tied to his bed with metal wire as his parents got high. His mom was just 13 when he was born. Far, far worse things happened to Alejandro than that, but it's just too much to share on a Sunday morning. Thankfully, he's now in foster care. The lady who runs this foster care, this after-school care center, attended by Alejandro, is a young woman in her 20s named Laura Mira. Up until recently, Laura worked as a heavyweight litigator for a prestigious law firm in Medellin. But recently, she turned her life over to Christ. Her mother, as a result, her mother, her brother mocked her. Her father wouldn't speak to her for an entire year, in spite of essentially being an atheist. Life hasn't been easy for Laura, but her life has certainly been transformed. Earlier this year, the the church launched a new outreach center, in a place called Guayabal, which is the city, the center of the city's local drug trade. So, as you know, Colombia has historically, and to a certain extent today, continues to export a great deal of its illegal drugs, you know, elsewhere, outside of the country. But increasingly, as there's, as, as there's more wealth in the country itself, there's a, there's a local, you know, drug trade. And people come from across outside of Colombia, but also from within Colombia, from all all around into this small community of Guayabal. We saw it, we saw it firsthand ourselves. Um, So the church announced the need for a director of this new outreach center. And Laura felt God speak to her. 
the salary on offer was just 25% of what she'd been making as a lawyer, barely enough for her to live on, but she took it. Fix your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So what have we, what have we looked at so far? One, believe in God, not in yourself. Second, hope in God, not in things. Finally, we see in this story the need to repent because you and I and everyone all around us are going to fail on points number one and number two on a routine basis. We inevitably fall short. So in verse 10, Joshua and the elders humble themselves. They tear their robes, sprinkle dust on their heads and lay on the ground until evening. Notice, notice a couple things about that. One, they know that someone has sinned. For through Moses, God has promised blessings to the people of Israel if they follow his commands. This is the Mosaic covenant. If Israel obeys, then they will be his treasured possession, his chosen people. That's why Jesus' disciples, you know, many, many generations later, encountered a blind man and asked the question of Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? Because somebody sinned for this tragedy to have happened. And of course, Jesus responds that neither have sinned. He was born blind to reveal God's glory at work in his life. But at this point, Israel is under the law. If they obey, they will be blessed. If not, they will be cursed. So they know they've sinned. Joshua, number two, Joshua repents, not just for himself, but on behalf of the people. Now that's that's a kind of an unusual, that's a strange thing for us to think about in this day and age. But community was so important to the Israelites that they recognized an important truth that is often lost today in, in the Canadian church, in the Western church. We are part of a body. My individual sin affects the whole. If one of us falls, to some extent, we all fall. Christian author Jen Wilkins writes, personal sin yields collateral suffering. Last week, Arendale sent a team to New Hope Youth Center in Thunder Bay. Thunder Bay is a city that has seen its fair share of collateral suffering on the part of our First Nations. Sins that occurred generations ago continue to haunt many of the tribes, the people who live across Northern Ontario and who have settled in the city of Thunder Bay for various reasons. I mean, if you spend some time to read up on Canadian history, you'll, you'll find it's, it's, there's just no doubt about it. We tried to eliminate entirely First Nations culture. Churches, Catholic mainline, even some evangelical churches were directly involved in this effort. The sin, you know, in some ways, it's, it, this is not a past sin. This is a current sin. I was, I was planting trees uh, in Western Canada, in British Columbia and Alberta, to save money for university. When I first encountered just the most overt and vociferous racism that I'd ever, I'd ever seen, uh, and again, this was this was towards First Nations peoples.
And you can debate the extent to which, to which this is a direct result and how things are correlated, but there's no question that the, in the wake of those sins, there has been a lot of collateral damage. Uh, First Nations communities today, many of them struggle with alcoholism, drug use, and violence. And we, you know, we do see that in Thunder Bay. If you take time to understand Canadian history, you'll see that we as a people who bear Christ's name, we collectively have failed in some ways, our First Nations peoples here in Canada. If Joshua and the elders who stole nothing could repent on behalf of their people, what might that look like for us? I believe the church in Canada, people who love Jesus, have a huge opportunity to bring love and reconciliation to our First Nations here in Canada. And I'm, I'm really thrilled to, to be able to say that Arendelle is playing a role in that. And if you'd like to, to learn more about how the church is engaged um, in, in and through Hope Story, specifically Thunder Bay, or even I mentioned a little bit about our work in, in Colombia, uh, or in any of the other countries that, in which we're active around the world, love, love to chat with you after the service. But back to the story. Like Joshua, even Achan in this story, God calls us to repent when we fall short. Because we are all going to fall short. All of us, you know, as I was, as I was drifting off to sleep last night, it just occurred to me, all of us in a big way can relate directly with Achan. And I think that might be, at least for myself, part of the reason that I react so strongly against his punishment. Because I, I can see myself there, right? This fundamentally, this fundamentally is a story of sin. It's the story of the garden. The Israelites have been given a blessed land for their rest. They are to take dominion over this land. God gives them one clear restriction. The forbidden fruit in this case the spoil of war. The penalty for this sin is death and losing fellowship with God. I think the point of this story is to remind us of the fall. Death is in the world because of a sin, just like Achan's. Sin entered the world and death through sin. So where, where is the grace in this story? Where is the hope we don't have to look much further than the garden. If the ancient Israelites who read, well, or heard this story, uh, recognized the garden parallels, they would have remembered the garden promise that one day a man would be born who would crush the serpent's head. And for us today, this morning, as we read this story in light of the gospel, we can all agree with Paul in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's our hope. And that's our story.
Thank you.